Have I got a story for you. It's about a kid who grew up on an island thinking he could fight the tide, growing into a man that literally went through them. And he learned life left many tides, and it's best to embrace the pain that they can bring. But first, speaking of pain, glass panes, today's sponsor, Picture Frames. Think about how many pictures you take in a day, a week, a year. Those images were taken for a reason. They were taken to be seen, to be accented, not to disappear in 48 hours or to pop up after a year in some memory. You took that picture for a reason, to save that moment. And with the right picture frame, that memory will be posted permanently. Kids, I know you think it's all about the filter. Forget about the filter. Get the right frame. Shit, picture frames predate photos. Van Gogh, Monet, Frida. As any real artist will tell you, portraits are soulless paintings, unless they are framed right. Every picture tells a uniquely different story, and every picture deserves its own unique frame. Picture frames. Don't just post pictures on social media so they can be forgotten. Hang them in your halls. Frame them on your walls. A house isn't a home until it's filled with picture frames. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. We are up to 10 followers on Instagram, one friend on Facebook, and I'd rather not mention the Twitter, self-esteem issues. We do have over 70 downloads to date on the various pod platforms, and I promise it is not just my mom. Follow, friend, subscribe. The pods and picks are out there. Get to know them. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you. Getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. And on today's show, we are getting to know Chris. So I asked you if you had a story. Did your mind go any particular place? Do you feel like you oh, have oh, a, have a story, story or an origin <laughs> story? Or? Uh, I have a big story. Awesome. So, um, when I was a kid, I was pretty much, uh, my parents worked their asses off either running their own business. My dad was in the Navy and then, uh, and, and I, and I was working as a, as a paper boy. I delivered papers. I did everything. Classic. So, um, and eventually, uh, I joined the Navy. So I joined the Royal Navy at like 17 years old. I failed everything at school. I literally, <laughs> I literally failed everything. I had nothing. I had no interest. I was reasonably good at sport. Uh, at highball diving, but nothing that involved um, team sports or anything. I wasn't like a top kid in school, just nothing. But um, when I joined the Navy, that was, uh, for me, this huge shift that I realized I had a brain. And I eventually ended up on nuclear submarines. Oh, wow. So quite, quite an elite group of um, quite crazy people who can most definitely survive in this scenario that we're living in right now. Yeah, they're pretty quarantined, um, huh? Because we used to live in a black 
steel tube hundreds of meters in under the sea with no contact home, no email, no internet, none mm-hmm. of that, no TV. What was your um, job on the sub? I was in tactical operations. So I worked in the nerve center of the submarine, monitoring everything around us, above us, below us, um, basically. Uh, and if and if uh, it came to it, I'm the one that did the analysis to shoot the torpedo or the weapon at the target. Oh, no. Wow. Or, as well as navigation. Anyone on a submarine had multiple roles. But uh, okay. it was... It, de- it definitely taught me something. And I did that for nearly 10 years. Can I, can I ask a follow-up? I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm interested go for in it, this. Go for it. So the American Army, you take this um, test. I believe it's the ASFAB test. And right. your score can dictate what your uh, job opportunities, your MOSs are. Yeah. Um, is it because you said you were a terrible student? Yeah, we so, had the same. Okay. And then you get your score back and you want to be like a mechanic. And they're like, yeah, you can be a mechanic on a nuclear sub. Like, yeah, I, did, was... <laughs> I definitely wouldn't be allowed to be a mechanic. And at that time, all it all it meant, I, I went for, um, luckily I went to a reasonably good school. Um, and th- I guess this is where I, I had kind of half a brain. I wouldn't say I was super intelligent, but any, anyone far from that. I just um, knew how to keep going as a kid, if you like. I was kind of super independent as well. Um, and I did the uh, the entrance exam. I think they call it NAMIT, Naval Naval Army Maths and English Test, or something. Uh, and and I got like a, a three out of ten. Uh, but but the lower you did, the better. If you already had. Uh, all right, I was a little worried there at first. I'm like, man, you got thirty percent, and you're in charge of a no, no, torpedo. No. Wow. So, <laughs> so if you've already got a zero, that means you've already got the qualifications. You don't even need to do the test. So uh, okay. what it meant was that uh, I could even join the Navy for starters. Um, but that did mean, it turned out that put me into a, a smaller group. Uh, and at the time they did need submariners. Now, weirdly, uh, in my head, I knew I was seasick <laughs> a few times. And I heard that being on a submarine, um, they were really stable and you just didn't get seasick. So in my head, that was like a brilliant idea. I, did, I had no idea what I was signing up for. That was crazy. Idea. Um, but yeah, so I ended up doing that for 10 years. It was incredible. Uh, literally it was incredible um and then when i was going through for officer crikey i must have been about 25 and i reached i studied like crazy when i was on, on board the submarine yeah because i mean what else right when your shift's over yeah exactly yeah uh, you work six on six off six on six off six on six off so oh. uh, you can't always go to bed and it's like you're in in a war situation all the time it just might be quiet some days and not others but um it's very difficult to explain to anyone who was never involved in it, but trust me, it is intense, um, uh, sometimes scary, and um, well, you're in the military. So, and ultimately, when you when you come into the real world, uh, well, some things just seem a little easier. Yeah, uh, I, well, even just dealing with the multiple time zones, like you're saying, someone who mm. did six on six off can learn how to like shut the brain off, get sleep when you need it, learn how to okay, this is my mission, let's not dilly dally, let's get it done. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, that really helped me. Yeah, no doubt. And, and in fact, the thing about sleep, you know, I learned very early that I needed to sleep at a certain time zone. So I was always awake between 1 and 7 a.m. in the morning. At, so your night time, in other words. And then it was breakfast time. But I didn't want to go to bed on a full breakfast. So I just used to batch, bag a, pick a bag of uh, like muesli or something and put it in my bunk in a bag. Then when I got up at lunchtime, I'd eat that breakfast. So I kind of got disciplined very early on to do that 
then I'd work all day and then I would only go to bed. So I would have to sleep in that kind of weird morning session from 7am to one in the afternoon. And then, um, I'd be back on shift again. I'd have my breakfast. Then when I came off shift at uh, 7 p.m., I would eat uh, my dinner, which was actually my lunch. Um, and then I would own, I would stay up and study or watch a movie or combo of both. And then maybe get one hour in my, in my bed, in my rack, before I got back and watch again. And that way I didn't sleep too much. Right. I would also work out then and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, just, uh, I got myself into a very strict routine and I realized that a routine really helped, but they do that as well. When you first start, you know, they don't allow you to sleep all the time because you need to qualify as a submariner when you're on board. And when you first start, that's how you get your dolphins on your, on your uniform. But, yeah. uh, yeah, it taught me, um, an incredible amount, the, uh, the discipline, the mentorship, um, the amount of, um, the work rate, um, the quality of work that you have to do, the camaraderie. There's a huge amount of stuff that I've learned that I've carried over to me to this day, I, especially becoming a confident man, I think, which is something that um, I see a lack in, in in many young men these days. Man, I'm, yeah, I, Hunter, you, and I, I was, um, I did a little basic training. I was nowhere near what you are. I was National Guard, just um, weekend warrior looking to pay for college. But coming out of basic training, and just knowing that resiliency in you to be like, I can wake up at this time and still accomplish a mission on this much sleep or like, you're going to get to that spot. We don't care how you yep. feel. You're getting to that spot. And just knowing that, oh shit, I can get to that spot <laughs> does a lot for you. It's I'm, I'm amazed more people don't look at the military as just a great transitional phase from childhood to manhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think... There are some people who are just not cut out for it. Uh, they just don't want to be told what to do and all that kind yeah. of um, regimental process. But th there's way more to it. Uh, and for me, it taught me that I had a brain, that I could apply myself. Um, it taught me self-discipline. It surrounded me by um, mentors who are considerably better at being intellectual human beings than I was. So it gave me... Um, a goalpost to shoot for, if you like. Yeah, the role um, model. Role model so important. Mm, definitely, especially as a guy. Especially as a guy, especially you're, uh, as a, as a genuine masculine, where you need to be um, stable and not just allow your emotions to be creative and all that kind of jazz. Um, and that could also be a woman if she's in a masculine. I think it's <laughs> incredibly important to have those role models that show. Uh, they show you a level of stability and self-discipline and how self-application that is consistent, that shows up day after day, can actually generate results. That that one statement there that I learned from the military has given me a time-honoured uh, payback uh, for my entire life, uh, especially in, in business and all the other things I've been through since leaving. Yeah, it can be funny how people um, how people gravitate towards different sayings, and they just yeah. use it to get them through certain situations. And it's I, I don't know if there's a science to why things connect or click or why whatever you've been through in your life you lean towards blank saying, but man, I sayings matter, <laughs> mantras matter. Yeah, yeah, uh, they they definitely work for me. They're good little things to call back on yourself. I think one of the things that um, 
it's beneficial for people to learn is positive self-talk or, oh, yeah. or, or indeed any self-talk. I'm amazed. It amazed when the at, mind yeah. says something, you need that, that um, person in the middle, if you like, to be able to bring yourself on track. Even with, even if you've said something negative, there is a reason for that, for that both sides. And you need that, that voice of reason in your mind to say, um, to be able to either assure yourself that you've got this or provide more positivity or even, when someone's giving you so much positivity that you almost even ignore that as well and keep yourself on an even keel. Because <laughs> yeah. too much positivity is, can definitely let your ego run away with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then, yes. I'm, I'm just picturing, like, the uh, um, emperor's clothing where it was yes. just nothing but positivity, and you're like, can somebody just fucking be real? Like, don't let this king feel like he's all that. And you're so right. You need that balance, right? You need to be humbled and yet confident. And it's hard mm. to be humble while being confident. If any of my mates are listening to this, go, Christopher, humble. You've got to be kidding me. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, definitely, yeah. Slightly overconfident at times, which is why I always say that because obviously that's in my head to pull me back down. Um, but yeah, that's my job, my job to pull me down. Although some of my, my good friends will make sure they do it as well. So that's why I love them. Do you, um, how on, on this submarine while you're younger, um, like what was like your closest, oh shit moment? Hmm. Some of them, some of them to quite a few movies I can't talk about. Um, <laughs> no joke, literally can't. Really? But, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I can give you one that, uh, is just about weather, um, being, coming out of, um, Scotland on a submarine in a horrendous gale, uh, very, very strong weather. And you no doubt have seen a black submarine with a thin part sticking out the top. Well, a lot of people don't realize you need some people up there looking out, just like you do on a ship. And we call that the bridge when we're on the surface. Okay. So we're, and when a submarine goes through the waves, it doesn't go over them like a ship, it just plows through them. So once we are out really deep, the, uh, and we're not diving. We haven't been giving the signal to actually be told to dive a submarine because that actually doesn't come from our captain unless there's something severely wrong. We have to get into an area to dive. And um, I just remember being a young kid being wearing this completely orange suit with only my face kind of exposed to the elements, but with a harness on. And the, the wave just crashing through these waves, these huge... 30 feet, 20 meter, uh, 10 meter, 20 meter seas, you know, just enormous yeah. and going through the middle of them. But then all of a sudden, occasionally, we would just have to hold our breath because they would go over the top. And because the submarine just plowed through the way. Yeah, you're just we were, sub- we were underwater. <laughs> Open you know, we're underwater for 20 bloody feet, Dude, 20, and, like, you know, 10 you- meters or something. So I'm there going, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> And then uh, that submarine, that particular submarine, I was on three of them, just before we dived, when you come up to that, that top part, there's two hatches, and you get in one and close that hatch and then open the bottom one. The problem is there's a pressure in the submarine. And on this particular occasion, when one of the guys was coming down, both hatches opened and one of these giant waves came down. Uh, and that meant the submarine had got full of water. Now, that in itself, water, fire, anything is scary enough. But having a submarine full of salt water, eventually we got rid of it. But it did mean 
we had this moisture in the air for weeks. We never turned around. We just went, we carried on going to sea. And that's when you realize how, how tough those guys are and resilient. You know, the boat doesn't turn around and go back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had to go under the North Pole and do various things there. And we, we ended up with colds. Um, and once one guy got a cold, everyone's getting one. Right. So, uh, yeah, that was just that alone. That was terrifying. For me, you know, I was probably 19 years old God, or, or even 18. Yeah, it was horrendous. You're, you're going, so you said you were attached. Are you like floating or, or how like tightly well, strapped you're, you're down are you, man? You're stood in the top, but I was, uh, yeah, I was attached to the, uh, the submarine there. Both, just two of us, myself and an officer, are just there with our heads stuck out at the top. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go look online, look at a submarine. You'll see the little, the big fin just sticking up. Right. And imagine people just kind of stood in two holes on the top of that. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's... Trust me, him and I, doesn't matter whether you're an officer or a junior, both absolutely terrified. Yeah. But we had a job to do and the job kind of takes over. Does does that um, duty get rotated around or were you like the push yeah, yeah, your head you're, out you're, of you're the hole? Yeah, oh, Okay. Gosh, it's pretty cold. So everybody's going through it then? or is Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. God. I couldn't imagine if that was like your, like some dudes get stuck, whatever, doing dishes, scrubbing pots and pans, peeling potatoes, and like you're the guy that pokes his head out of a hole. Like if uh, Yeah, no, job, we, we all took, uh, took part in cleaning up as well. There's no, submarine's very different world from, uh, from a ship or marines or anything. You know, it's all... So it's this massive family that are all under the sea, hundreds of meters, completely isolated. Um, we have to have the discipline of self-isolation, but working as a team. Yeah. Did it ever really wig you out thinking like, Jesus, if something goes on, it's like I'm in my head, I'm thinking you're that far under. Do you no. ever feel like it's crushing? Do you ever feel no. like, man, I'm just trapped, like claustrophobic, I guess is what I'm looking for. I never had it. There was, you occasionally see a few guys lose it. Um, but do you know when you first realize that how, how complex that is, is when you go very deep and uh, the bulkhead or the wall, as we call it, would bend. So the corridor <laughs> that you would normally walk down was all of a sudden bending. <laughs> so you knew you were pretty deep. God. That, when, when you're 17 years old or 18, you can, you can, that definitely goes, whoa. Yeah, that, that means I'm deep. <laughs> That's the first time. I've... Check, check, fear, carry on. Right. <laughs> Man, yeah, and that will help uh, a young adolescent mature real quick and get some life perspective, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and later on, and we do this thing called the tank when you're doing it. You're, you climb into a tube in this simulator with, uh, what, 100 feet of water above your head, 30 meters, and uh, you have to open the tank, open this um, hatch and then fly into this, uh, this tube covered in water. In, uh, it's basically a tank. You just climb in the bottom and you have to ascend in your, in your suit. Then this is to simulate if a submarine hits the bottom and is stuck down there and you're supposed to be able to get into an escape hatch and zoom out the bottom for hundreds and hundreds of feet. People have literally done it from 600 feet. Undown, but the training I can tell you is somewhat uh, arduous. It's probably the most tame word I can even think of. But the one when I went to do that again, I think it was seven years in. You have to do various medical tests, and when I did that medical test, I actually failed it. Uh, and at that point, 
very quickly. They turned around to me and said that there was something wrong with my lungs and um, that uh, I was immediately removed from the submarine, I think it was seven or eight years, uh, and put through various tests and then told that I was going to be medically discharged from the Navy. So a job that I'd signed up for 22 years because it was kind of, that was me, that's who I was. Yeah, I was going to say, man, that your identity is getting stripped from you at that point, Oh, yeah, totally. And that's happened more than once. But yeah, so I was literally medically discharged from the Navy and uh, I couldn't understand it as well because I was also a highboard diver in my part time, in my spare time. Whenever I got the opportunity, I was in the pool diving, training, keeping fit, that kind of thing. So um, as soon as I got out, I went and did that. You know, I went and went into coaching. The money was appalling. It was like $5 an hour or something, coaching nice. kids and then diving. And then, um, uh, and then I thought, you know, why don't I just start my first business, which was a, a sports shop. And then that maybe that could bring in some money. What I didn't realize is you need to actually run the business <laughs> and have some business <laughs> acumen in order for it to be a success. So, uh, yeah. So was what was funny. what was the couple of the biggest mistakes you made in that first business where you were like, like, I'll do this. I'll do something. And then you look back, you're like, Jesus, how was I so stupid? <laughs> uh, well, I literally opened a business with that sold running kits and triathlon gear and, a, you know, a genuine sports shop and swimming stuff, obviously. Um, I, I underestimated how much stuff people would buy and in some stuff and overestimated it in other stuff. So gotcha. I had this shop full of stuff that would run out and other stuff that didn't. And one would tie up the cash flow. So I didn't really get uh, the accountancy stuff. So I went and qualified as an accountant as soon as that was done and uh, trained as a software engineer. So I learned two components, one technology and the other one about business. How so did, it was, it was, it, that lasted literally only 18 months. It was a huge learning curve. But uh, yeah, and from there. How did you pick the stuff to sell? Were you like, oh man, I'm really into triathlons. I'm going to pick a bunch yeah. of sneakers. You just got- Yeah, well, because I was medically discharged with lung disease. Um, I started running. I wanted to prove, again, there's a military thing, and also my own tenacity and stubbornness. I wanted to prove that I wasn't unfit. So I went and ran the London Marathon. Oh, what uh, what was your time? uh, Three hours, 57. You cracked four hours on the marathon? Yeah, with with asthma and lung disease. God, dude. That was my very first one. Congrats, man. Wow. So I'm going to go much quicker now and try and tell a little bit of the story. And you can kind of, I guess you pick it because I've, I've got 20 minutes. So uh, I guess you can, uh, you can pick out stuff on that because it kind of gets a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> so Can't wait. I, 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 uh, I basically became an IT consultant because I had knowledge of um, finance and tech. And uh, that was doing great. You're literally running a business down in, in southwest England, a beautiful area where, where I grew up. Uh, with the sea on both sides of the country, literally only half an hour travel. But I was literally driving all over the place to do this. So, um, and that's that's when I started to learn the power of a, of, a, of the right the right customer and the right uh, value that you charge. So, you know, working fifteen hour days and earning only seventy grand a year with loads of costs as well, started to think, well, wow, I'm never going to get rich. But uh, and I and I was still trying to pay off all the debt from the shop, so that was kind of entertaining. And then, two thousand, the year two thousand, I got um, a contract in London. So all of a sudden, I 
worked up in London for a few days. And for and then that just escalated. It just got bigger. I was starting to learn lots of money. It was the dot-com boom. It was crazy time. My knowledge was going through the roof. Um, when someone asked me if I knew how to do it, I'd just say yes, then go get the book and study <laughs> the damn thing 24 hours a day. Right. You always say yes at the opportunity. Figure it yeah, out Yeah, I think Richard Branson even says that. Yeah. You know, if you're presented with an opportunity and you're not sure if you know how to do it, say yes and learn later. Yeah. I, I definitely... I'd read his book, uh, something, screw it or something. And it, he stated that. So when someone says, what do you know about Microsoft servers? I was like, yeah, yeah. Oh, everything. About that. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I didn't, I, hopefully I didn't say everything, but I probably <laughs> did know me. But yeah, I remember literally sleeping behind my mate's sofa and then commuting into London for three to six hours, both sides. But, but reading on the book, these books as, as I did it. Um, but yeah, I got myself out of debt. Uh, I was having a great life in London. I was running all the time. I was training for triathlon as well. I wanted to do my first triathlon, which was the London Triathlon, which was the world's largest um, in competitive size with over 10,000 people doing it. And What's then one day I was cycling home and got hit head on by a car. <laughs> oh, God. So I'm only three or four years away from losing everything and being medically discharged. And then this happens. How serious Wake. was the hit? So um, I remember waking up and um, that's never I, good. I couldn't quite hear what was going on. It was just loads of muffled noises, kind of like when you take off from an airplane. Okay. Um, and as you come back down, your, your ears pop and the noise starts rushing back in. But it was kind of like that, but throw in some pain. Yeah. So as you as the as the noise comes back in and you realise the noise is you're in an accident an emergency uh, area and people are running around you and then I noticed yellow things either side of my eyes. Now I used to be a highboard diver and there was lifeguards there and one of the things that we used to do when we did the lifeguard work if any we had a problem with any of the divers is put people on a spinal board. Right. So I saw those two yellow things and freaked out because I realised I was lying on one. Oh, Jesus. So, and then next minute I was asleep again. So clearly I was freaking out and causing a little too much uh, issue. So they injected me and, uh, um, well, yeah. And, Cause uh, if you twist or something like that, you just make it worse, right? Mm, like yeah, you, you so, jerk something, you're, you're screwing yourself over, but I can't imagine yeah. in that moment, the panic. Well, to cut a long story short, um, I had upper thoracic whiplash, which is like the middle part of your back at the top. Uh, I had a completely destroyed my the very bottom disc which is called s1 and l4 and l5 both compressed the discs had herniated and the spine had been crushed down the bottom there i'd also destroyed the nerves and which you would call the funny bone which is actually called the ulnar nerve so i had a triathlon handlebars and because i was in the triathlon position the car hit me head on and it basically crushed both my elbow nerves so that meant i couldn't grip I couldn't really, all I could do was lie down. But weirdly, and this is, we didn't know that immediately. I, I had these horrible feelings in my fingers and my back, but I felt like I could walk around. Um, and I did. I was kind of walking around in a daze for six weeks because I had a concussion. <laughs> but um, three months later, uh, I went to get out of bed and couldn't, couldn't understand what was going on. So no one had actually given me a scan. So I've just told you something that we didn't find out till a bit later. And when I went to get out of bed, I couldn't move. 
So we got me to my uh, osteopath who just looked at me and went, you need to go to hospital. So literally lying down in this car, and you can imagine me, people literally picking me up because I could barely walk. And when they got there and did an MRI scan, they were like, oh, oh, this is not good. <laughs> this is much worse than we realized. So um, ultimately, I ended up having multiple spinal operations, operations on my arms. This lasted years, this recovery process. Um, so that meant the business that I'd built was gone, literally gone. So, but what I did is, um, well, can I, I ask you, cause it's interesting. You keep going to the business. Are you, is your mentality? Like I'm just getting the surgery and then I'm getting back. I got to make sure my business is healthy or is your mentality at this point? Like I could die and be paralyzed, screw everything else, get me healthy. Oh no, I'm stubbornly positive. So uh, I'm probably in probably oblivious to the bad things that go on in the world. It kind of it um, kind of sounds like it, man. I'm like I'm hearing all these medical things, and it's like it doesn't. You're probably I'm. Are you the guy wondering like, fuck, man, I really wanted to get in that triathlon. I'm gonna have to wait a year to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> and, and not only that, I also introduce things that probably make my life a little too complicated. <laughs> in retrospect, what I needed to do was recover, not try and plan to how I was going to get fit, run a company, yeah. you know, how I was going to do the triathlon and run the business. So I did though, I realized, hold on, I'm going to get pro. I'm going to go pro here. So I, I, the same business, I went and employed some friends who I'd worked with in the past, built a company called Experta. Um, and I literally used to go to the office and lie on the floor. And then half that time was chasing a specific insurance company that didn't want to pay out. Uh, for my medical bills so I had no choice but to work even if it was lying on the floor and teaching guys to to do my job although some of those guys were better than I was thankfully but um, yeah I built this business and I just kept that going and consistently I was fighting to recover which that was years years later the whole process from it took about five years really to to actually recover and run again do you feel normal now or do you still feel yeah like i feel amazing off? now um, i still get issues if i'm really tired i get my nerve endings have been damaged in both my arms and uh on my back but that but because of the process that i went through for from eight years so i kind of lost about five or six years in my 30s work for this last 30 um and yeah uh wow yeah i'd probably make God knows how many girlfriends my misery by being such a broken idiot um <laughs> but yeah i was I went through every roller coaster emotional, emotionally possible. I was on loads of medication. Yeah, um, that can't help. That made me really quite fat as well um, because I just didn't control my eating because I was still eating as if I was an athlete. Oh, yeah, um, man. That's something real. You're used to burning three, 4,000 calories a day, and then all of a sudden you're burning like 1,500? Yeah, literally nothing. And yeah. then, yeah, just got overweight. Plus, I was on steroids. I, 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 bear in mind, I've got lung disease. Right? <laughs> so. I'm being, I've got this really bad asthma and I took these tablets called Prendisolone, which is a steroid. So that, that stuff screws with your body as well. Um, then I was on pain meds. Then, oh God, it was just so complex. Just to be able to get around, I had to take tons and tons of medication yeah. so that I could kind of get up and just try and live a normal functional life, which wasn't really the case. And I was kind of miserable for quite a while. But then I kind of have a weird realization one time that uh, I'm in pain no matter how, what I do. So if I do nothing, I'm in pain. Um, and if I do something, I'm in 
pain. So it's so better to well do something the pain. than nothing. <laughs> right? Yeah, enjoy the pain. Yeah. So I just kind of went through the pain, although maybe took a little too many painkillers sometimes, um, which definitely had an effect on my on my health. But um, eventually, but I started doing things like just walking and working out. And by working out, I literally just mean uh, putting a ball on the wall and rolling up and down it, you know, or, or walking ten steps, or uh, just trying to be a in a simple plank uh so many this is after all the operations just so much you take for granted as a decently athletic or um flexible yeah, even person just a normal human being yeah, regardless, right. regardless of the athleticism but the 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 business was the thing that kept me going the sport was the carrot to get fit again gotcha um and then when i was 39 i was kind of had a year done yeah i, d- I did um a 5k and i was elated and, did, and then were you okay? With, what was your time in the five k? Uh, probably about thirty minutes. It was no big deal. Did it, uh, but did then it I, eat I you did up? a ten k, and um, it was kind of fifty minutes. So it was okay. Well, no, I um, guess I'm just wondering. So your first five k, your do you have a time where you're like pushing your body to hit whatever, or are you just happy to finish it? And you're like, no, I was pretty much happy to finish. And the ten k that I did shortly after, which was called the London ten k at the time, night whole series of them i think it was called run the world or something i burst into tears when i came over that and i was in absolute agony when i did it but i was just so um i just wanted to finish basically gotcha. so it's kind of proved to myself and in my head i'm like yeah i'm done now you know i was 39 i'm done i don't need to do any more sport i'm just going to run the business um and within crikey by then the business was doing a million a year you know so i i had gone through hell but because I built these other distractions, it was these were good distractions. Yeah. So, um, boy, am I cutting the story short. But these are good distractions of how I got the business there. But then, at the same time, um, a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, his brother got killed in a bike accident, literally killed. And then on my 39th birthday, I'm in the pub drinking with all my mates. And another friend of mine, who was in Afghanistan at the time, um, he basically told me that um, you're going to see something in the news and loads of people that he knew, including the first woman, had been killed. So I was like, wow, I'm ex-Navy, I'm ex-military. There are people out there doing that. I now felt a bit lazy. I also realized I'd probably nailed quite a few beers that day and uh, I got myself a bit fat. So because of our friend, um, our friend's brother, they said, you know, come and do this other 10K. So we went and did a 10K and then we decided to sign up for a triathlon. So I did that as well. And I did particularly awful. It was pretty painful. And Dude, then how are you like, getting wow. back on that bike to train? So like 10 years prior, do you know what? You that was the most painful wrecked. thing I've done. Mentally or physically? No, in every possible way. The, the pain in my groin was unbelievable when I first did it. It was awful, in fact, and it was windy when I did it. I didn't really do much training on the bike. Um, <laughs> Because I was kind of, I still had a mental block on the bike. I hadn't been on a bike at all. Yeah, um, that's, that's what I can't get over. Like, how do you train on something? Like when you, so when you first got hit, was I it was your fault? Training in the gym on a static bike. Oh, dude, yeah, that's yeah, that that was not the right plan. But uh, yeah, it was kind of crazy. Whose fault was but the then, original accident? Sorry, whose fault was the original accident? Oh, a woman. She jumped a red light. 
God. And just basically T-boned you or? And basically just piled into my bike and my bike somersaulted over the car. Well, I somersaulted over the car. The bike stayed where it was. How did, did you have any kind of relationship with her? As far no. as like, did you want anything to do no. with her? Or it was like, man. Not really. Me. Not really. Their, their family approached me to kind of help with some medical bills. But what, what they paid for in the short term was not the impact that happened over many, many years. Gotcha. Um, but yeah. But um, I yeah. then made the decision that I was going to get fit and maybe do make a difference. So in nine weeks' time, I heard the Chicago Marathon was on. I obviously live in the UK. So I trained like a crazy person. So I ran to work. So I lived seven <laughs> miles away from seven miles from work. Well, I got annoyed by going in the tube. And man, that was difficult. But in the end, I was literally running to and from work. So I was running over a half marathon every single day. Yeah. Every single day. What's the so terrain like? Sorry? What's the terrain like? Pretty flat, hilly? It's, it's pretty flat in London. There's, okay. there's a few hills, but... Um, and, and after kind of six, seven weeks, it was, it became fun. It's kind of bizarre. And then I flew to Chicago, like literally on a red eye, flew over there, ran the marathon, stayed there for two days, ran the marathon in three forty nine, jumped on a plane. Uh, the people on Virgin were amazing, gave me four seats to literally sleep <laughs> and then flew back to London. I got back to work. Just cause you and can. raised a ton of money. <laughs> So, and then I got a kind of a bug. So then over the next year, I, I did five or six marathons, God knows how many halves. And then someone introduced me to an ultra run. I ran like a 50 mile ultra run. Um, like in one day? Yeah. No way. Yeah. So then I was like, wow, this is fun. Uh, kind of. It was pretty painful. But I was going to say, Jesus, dude, it really sounds like you enjoy this pain. <laughs> I, I'd, I guess I'd, I'd endured some kind of pain and um, put myself through it. But at the same time, I realized I was getting really positive feedback about what I was doing. And we were raising money for various charities, but more military charities. Obviously. Oh, okay. The US, but you know, this was uh, 20... 2010 2009 2010 so it was all very there was there was people coming home every day in a box so especially in the us uh, less so in the uk but sufficiently enough that we were hearing about it especially the wounded so um and i knew that when i was in the military no one really no one cared we didn't really wear our uniforms outside the gate they weren't really looked at very positively not not like they were in the us um and then all of a sudden there was this great shift so again like similar as we're seeing right now, there's a great shift. All of a sudden, the military is there to protect us again, and people are starting to see that. What, so, um, what I, brought I guess about I was just shift. giving back. I was wondering what brought about the shift over there. Oh, the fact that you're starting to see guys come home with legs missing and all this kind of kind of stuff. And um, there's a friend of mine. He's in the he's in the Royal Marines, and he's on the front cover of books because uh, he took. Bizarrely, they took some incredible pictures of him in the middle of the war. Now, he's fine, but loads of people he knows and, and he used to talk about to me literally had, were limb, had limbs missing and everything. And one of the charities I work for, they were telling me all about it all the time and showing me the interviews. And then I started meeting some of these guys. One of the guys had literally had was the most wounded survivor ever. And I met him with one of the senior members of the, of the, the army. 
um, at the end of a giant run. So in 1945, at the end of the war, there was, or 44, in fact, there was uh, something, there was uh, 200 guys who were paratroopers flew in a glider, incredibly back in 1940, from uh, an airfield in, in England and arrived in France. Well, they decided to recreate that. And we ran that whole thing, which was <laughs> 70 miles Jesus, with packs on. And we were all representing one of those members who did it. And I actually met guys who were in Afghanistan and Iraq and also people who were related to the actual pilots or the various members from 1944. So we did this thing. And when we got to uh, Pegasus Bridge in France, we, we met um, the... Richard Dannett, who was the head of the army, and also um, Parkey, who was this guy who'd lost so many, uh, who'd literally had, he was in wheelchair, everything. But he was inspirational when I met him. He was like just trying to rebuild his life. So I just kept getting these little kind of catalysts right. to motivate myself. Um, and then, crikey, over the next kind of four years, I walked, swam, hiked, bike, ran 10,000 miles. I did swam seas, I did Ironman triathlon, I did, I don't know how many marathons and half marathons, but I did ultra runs, I did 100, mar- 100 miles in a day. Um, in- I English Channel? A- Isn't that a thing over there where you swim? Oh, I English didn't do the English Channel, that's for, in- that's for people who are clinically insane, and I wasn't that mad. No? Um, and, then, and then the <laughs> friends of mine who had lost their brother decided to climb one of the highest mountains in Europe, or the highest mountain on the, in Europe, which was Mount Elbrus in Russia. Um, so we did that as well, and it was minus 37 when we did it. Um, and I nearly died on that, but that's another story. But, so I did like load all these crazy things, and um, it basically taught me that when if you have a motivation, you can achieve anything, literally anything. I transformed my life and so much so I was telling the story on social media and as I was doing it and people started sharing their stories with me. So there was people from all over the world, you know, like with genuine, like if I thought I was, uh, I had a problem, I'm talking people with genuine uh, losses of, you know, losing children in cancer, yet they've done five Ironmans and raised $300,000. So all these stories were coming in from all over the world. So I stuck them all on a website called Take a Challenge. All on a website called Take a Challenge. And um, that got so big. And my following on Twitter at the time got quite large that uh, I got nominated for an award called the Shorty Award, which is pretty much now the world's largest award for uh, social media. And so that was just doing all that stuff and telling stories. Yeah, just and, trying to um, keep it going, right? Have yeah, and also telling other people's stories. Yeah. So, and, and I won the damn thing. I literally had to fly to New York and stand on a stage. I didn't know that until I got there. Stand on the stage with, with the likes of Charlie Sheen and Red Bull and all these big companies. And I was just this guy doing some running, telling a story. Um, and a lot of the time by then, it wasn't even about me anymore. It was about all these other people because I'd kind of yeah. had my story. So that's it very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you seem way busy. You got uh, way more going on. I appreciate the time that you're able to spend, man. 
but yeah no it's an absolute pleasure yeah so um if if there was anything people could take from that it it is that um no matter what happens in our lives anything is possible well i also feel like the push through the pain it can it's hard when you're in like a first world country and especially when kind of everybody's a winner and I know over here you try to help people to avoid the suffering or avoid discomfort. And that's almost yeah, one of the worst things you can do, right? You, mm. Like that's, it makes you soft. It doesn't give you any of that resiliency. And I think your mentality of I'm being pain either way, I might as well be actively through the pain or get something from the pain versus let the pain get something from me. Like that's, what you've just said there is kind of profound and actually very true. We don't, we are a nation um, in the, or the West, at least, of um, we're almost codependent. We, we don't want everyone to suffer, so we don't want people to experience maybe pain we've had ourselves or something. Yeah. But often the pain is transformational. Look Dude, at the pain that we're all going through right now because of the situations. Everybody Not me who's, but other people are. Yeah, everybody who's anybody has had to go through failure, rejection, agony. Yeah in order to be something or else you just don't appreciate it. You know, it's like second generational wealth getting squandered because the Mm. kids don't know how to work. And I've got friends who are, um, who've lost uh, siblings, you know, children, all of that kind of stuff. And and I wouldn't suggest for a second that any of that is transformational. I'm, I'm sure it is in some way. There's always some kind of balance somewhere. Um, but I've seen incredible good, come out of loss um from so many people i've i've spoke to so many people on this earth who have just been nothing but incredible human beings despite the experiences they they've had which have been far more severe than anything i ever went through so for me i've got this great benchmark now that i can if anything gets a bit difficult i can one look back at my own experiences but more importantly look back at the stories of others and say and go wow yeah i've got it really good right now <laughs> yeah yeah perspective right yeah nothing so, like yeah that's very give you powerful what you've just said there, that sometimes people do need to suffer to learn yeah um are you a parent i'm not okay. um i'm not thankfully i i do have a wife now and we are most definitely planning on that she's probably looking at me like crazy right now but um <laughs> yeah it took me it took me a while to rebuild my life uh, you know, I'm 50 now. Um, I, hopefully, I don't look like it, but I think <laughs> not I with think, the not um, with the filters I, on. Kind of lost, kind of lost about seven or eight years. So I'm still feeling like I'm 40 something. But um, yeah, I'm. Just, I love life. I bounce out of bed every day. Uh, it's, it, 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 yeah, I just uh, life is a passion for me, and I think people forget. Well, it should be the, right. There's some of those basics. And although they're getting reminded again right now, aren't they? Oh, well, that's, I mean, I, it, it's funny, but definitely it can be a wake up call when you take for granted, like not wanting to enjoy meals going out or even just the vibe of being in a bar, watching a game or a fight and like the energy that comes from that. Mm. Um, it's very easy to take for granted and people can easily just want to crawl in a hole. And now that you've crawled into a hole, it's like, Jesus, I don't want to be in this hole. I want to be out. <laughs> yeah and sometimes that can take a bit of time to get out of that hole man yeah man that's interesting uh as far as i can't believe sub and then this whole 
website. What inspired you to create this? So that's just what your business was. And then you said, Hey, I'm good at social media. So I'm going to put all these stories together. Um, it was kind of, um, I built a blog that just to tell my story and people kept sharing them. So I put them all on one website. It, it's going back up in two, in two or three weeks. So everyone will be able to see it. Um, but yeah, I've got this math. We've literally been redesigning it because I think it's, because that's what my team do. We build websites and and I think right now is a perfect time to bring it back. Yes. <laughs> everyone needs a bit of positivity and there's some great, um, there's hundreds of incredible stories on there. But it was basically, people are giving me stories. Yeah. So I'm like, wow, why don't I just, instead of me keeping that, why don't I just put it on it online so everyone else can share it and they can feel inspired. So, and and I've been, that kind of thing happened everywhere. There are now thousands of people every single day doing a challenge called 6am club. Um, which I invented over 10 years ago. Uh, and if you go on social media, you'll see 6am club is everywhere as a hashtag. And another one was created off the back of it called 5am club. People even wrote books about it. I created that. I created that when I was broken because <laughs> it was my inspiration of how I got up every day and got something done. Just to so, get out of bed, 6am club, get out of bed and go work out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I love what you're doing right now because you're telling stories. You're listening to stories and telling stories. Stories are transformational for some. Now, they might give people a short-term motivation to go do something, but when a normal man on the street starts doing a marathon or doing whatever he's doing, and your next-door neighbor has the same mortgage, the same car, kids go to the same school, but he's not doing something, and the guy next door is doing something, it does make you check your life. You know, when we look at Michael Jordan, we go, elite athlete, we can't all be Michael Jordan, right? But we can all be um, the next-door neighbor. So when normal people tell their stories, it has an incredible transformational power. Yeah. And it also kind of seems like you're almost coupling the physical activity with almost capitalistic productivity. And man, if you just get in this habit of where's my goal, let me work hard, let me accomplish it, that goes through your life. It probably translates into your relationships, translates into your work, translates into your physical fitness, your mental well-being. And Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that again, can be real easy, especially with all the screen and the internet that we have um, in, in the Western world where you can just waste a whole day binging. Yeah, and you can. That consuming versus word. producing, yeah. you know, and you're like, Absolutely. man, quit, quit consuming so much. Go out and produce yeah. something, create. People were meant to create and produce, not just Absolutely. consume. Yes, I agree with that fully. I, um, I am a uh... I'm definitely a staunch capitalist um, in terms of of being a productive human. You know, I do think there's some unfairnesses in the world and we can't solve them all and some of them do need to be fixed. But um, I think if we all take personal responsibility for our lives where we can and we look after those who are the most fragile and need a hand up, that ultimately I believe that the road to do that is to being productive individuals and not having to rely on a giant infrastructure that could be the state or or something um so yeah i'm all for the kind of the 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 small business who just gets off his backside and goes to put hard sweat and toil into building something i love that concept and everything i've been through and go through has helped me transition into because i literally been in business 20 years so uh in in various forms so that everything i've gone through has has taught me how to be a a male, a human, but also a business person, if you like. What do you an so, entrepreneur? Well, I was gonna say, being an entrepreneur, what do you like most about it? 
Like, is it a win? Do, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the trust. The, first of all, the trust. Trust in... Um, the trust in being able to do stuff. Um, so... Um, trust in My ability to be... My ability to know no matter what happens, I can deal with it. Do you know what I mean? So no matter when, when things are difficult, I know I can deal with it. And do you enjoy just that challenge? Do you almost hope for the difficulty so you can kind of no, like problem solve? No, but <laughs> I, I am trying to build something all the time. And that, that, and I love that. I love that building. I love having a team of people and being a mentor to that team and trying to make, in, trying to make them better than me. Some of them are already better than me, which is fantastic because that should be the goal to have a team of people who are considerably better than you are. But uh, yeah, there are so many aspects of it I love. Interesting. Yeah, I've always wondered. Um, I I feel like if you're a businessman, and I've never really, I've I've never really been a business guy. I've been a waiter, <laughs> had a lemonade stand, but I've never been a legit business guy. But I feel like if your only goal in business is money, you're not going to have a successful business. No, you notice I never mentioned money once. Yeah. Um, now that's going to be a byproduct if I do what I do properly. Now I'm going to get paid for a commensurate level of value compared to what I do. So. But uh, that isn't my my goal is to obviously build a business that is profitable. But ultimately, if it's and my responsibility is to generate enough revenue for the team to be paid for their value as well. But that but I'm not talking. Uh, I don't talk just from money because money isn't sufficient enough to get you out of bed every day and do something you love with consistency over a very long period of time. And it's the long game which is going to make you win, not the short game. Short game is a loser. Hmm. How, um, and I don't know how much uh, more time you have, my friend. I have four minutes. Four minutes. <laughs> Got you. Um, so tell me some goofy story as you as a kid growing up that you think impacted you. Tell me like a stupid school story that you were like. Oh, oh simple. Um, very simple. When I was a kid, we didn't have any internet. We had no mobile phones, no computers, nothing. We did the most dumb stuff. Um, I, at one point, I lived on an island off the coast of England, and we would cycle everywhere as kids. And uh, we lived, I lived just off the Irish Sea. And if there was a storm, we used to do the most dumb stuff, like hold on to these railings where the storm was and get battered by the sea. Like, <laughs> the, the chance of, being, of drowning when I was a child was probably immense. And, and that, I, I did the most incredibly dumb stuff like that so many times trying to beat the tide yeah. my god what was wrong with me <laughs> but man it was fun i was yeah <laughs> that's a great i think i think i think what kids are missing out there. oh 100 because i doubt parents would let their kids almost have free reign on a bike on an island during a storm to just go mm. like hey the storm's out oh cool go hang out outside like yeah, parents I think don't kids say that anymore. Trusted more back then to kind of just come home on time and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no doubt. There wasn't that fear. Right? I do wonder if your parents ever thought like Jesus, he's gonna get swept out to sea. Or if they were um, just happy to get you out of the house. <laughs> I think I think back then, one of my generation X, it's very different. You know, kids we what they had to do was get you to teenager without killing you. Right. You know, make sure you were fed occasionally. You know, you knew how to open the fridge and put some put some meat in your mouth. And then carry on. There's the orange juice. There's the, there's the cornflakes. It was, yeah, get you from here to here. 
That was kind of it, I think. Well, especially where I, in my my kind of life. I know I know that some people have had much more healthier experiences, but um, yeah, people people had jobs back then. You know, they had to work really hard. Yeah, houses were cheaper, uh, but so but the, the wages were virtually nothing. So uh, it was all relative, I guess. Yeah, it, it, I, I do think in some areas it, life is considerably easier, and there are more opportunities. But also, there are more distractions now. Yeah. So uh, I don't think I'd like to be a kid now, to be honest. Man, the the pressure of social media, I missed it too. I could not imagine the pressure to post things and then the judgment that comes along with it while you're trying to form your identity as a child. It just yeah, no, has I wouldn't to, like that at all. No, it, it it would really screw me up, I think, and make me very much risk adverse where I'm not trying to hear it. I'm not trying to be judged. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to play it safe and fly under the radar. I think that's, I feel like it's going to stifle the next wave of creativity because people aren't going to want the negative comments. Yeah, I get it. Well, I know you got to go, man. Um, And I keep forgetting to ask people this, but would you mind um, sending me a picture or two that I can post along with it that deals with either your military, your running, something where um, it would basically be the visual um, for people when they play the story? More than happy to. I can send you. Oh, awesome, Chris. And I've also recorded this, so I can send you that as well. Cool. I'm recording it as well. Um, oh, fantastic! Yep, and it'll probably be up in a couple of days, man. Um, awesome. Yeah, and I'll um, I'll send you a message when it is. Um, do you go by Chris or Christopher, or are you Chris like is a, great. A, Chris is a knight? Great. I feel like you might be a knight somehow. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, just Chris. All right. Um, well, Chris, man, it was really nice getting to know you, dude. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. All right, and I'll talk to you later. Bye bye. Enjoy your day. like to thank Chris for coming on today's pod, for sharing his story to a complete stranger and allowing all of us to get to know him. I'd like to thank Picture Frames for sponsoring today's pod. Um, when you take those pictures, make sure you post them permanently with a picture frame. If you have a story to tell or are looking to have a complete stranger listen to you tell it, uh, then post it somewhere. Feel free to get up with us. Um, we are Getting to Know You Pod, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Um, Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and iHeart. All right. Bye.